I'd never been in opposition before, but I remembered when I was in government that some of the, the veterans that had been around for a while that had spent years in opposition used to say, your worst day, your absolute worst day in government will be better than the best day you ever have in opposition. Now that I'm leader of the opposition, I do understand that a bit because really as opposition, your only job is to critique the government and to point out their weaknesses. And that's easy for me to do because they frankly give me lots of material. But as a person that is by nature very optimistic and wants to get things done and likes to fix things and go out and solve problems, it's frustrating when you haven't got the tools of government at your hand to be able to do that. I'm Peter McCulley. Kevin Falcon is the leader of the B.C. United Party, the official opposition in the B.C. legislature. We'll talk about the party's name change, attracting quality candidates to politics, as well as housing and health care issues on this edition of Today in B.C. Thanks for joining us again on the podcast, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Peter. Good to be back. Your leader of the party formerly known as the B.C. Liberals, now the B.C. United. What was the catalyst behind the change? The catalyst was a lot of our members were pushing for a name change, primarily because they wanted to, first of all, make sure that we had a party that wasn't seen to be connected to any existing federal parties, and that, in fact, was something that was all about BC first, and making sure that we try to unite as many people behind a sort of a free enterprise, private sector-driven economy, which is the best way to generate revenues government. So people that shared those principles could unite under a new name and we went out to the public and our membership and we had literally thousands of potential names submitted and through the course of that selection process we came up with BC United. And I like it because I love the idea of unity and united. I really believe that in British Columbia regardless of where you were born or what god you choose to pray to or you know, who you choose to love. I think it's important that people feel really welcome in a party that is anchored by principles and wants to try and get different results than we're seeing today. How often does the, doesn't BC United sound like a soccer club? <laughs> yeah, actually, that's what our NDP friends across the way criticized it, saying it sounds like a soccer club, which it does actually. And I lean into that because I'm a soccer dad. My daughter, Josephine, was involved in soccer, and I love going to the games, even in the pouring rain, to cheer on the team. Soccer is also a team sport. Politics is a team sport, too. You know, I work with a group of outstanding individuals that care a lot about the province and the future, and we work together to try and make sure we get that message across to the public and say, you know, there's a different way of doing things, and I think we can get different results. When we have the next provincial election, it'll be the first time in over 100 years that a quote-unquote Liberal Party will not be on the ballot in B.C. Does that move to rebrand the party, leave a spot open for a new party, and perhaps splitting the vote further? No, I don't think so. Look, we've always had vote splitting in B.C. Usually, for the NDP, it's been the Green Party. More vote splitting comes from them than us. And with us, it it used to be the BC Reform Party, then that faded away, and then it's the BC Conservative Party, which is a separate and distinct party from the Federal Conservative Party. There's no connection at all, but they do have the same name, and so people get confused, and they sometimes think, oh, yeah, I'm conservative federally, therefore I should be voting that provincially. But, in fact, there's no comparison between the two, and that has been a problem in the past, but usually just between elections. Once we get to an election, most folks out there realize, look, we got to decide who's going to be the next premier of this province. There's only two people that are going to be the next premier of this province. It's either David Eby or Kevin Falcon, and I think most people get that. In Canada, voters seem much more willing to vote for a different party on occasion, as we note the difference in the changes in the numbers of the seats in Parliament. In the United States, with two major parties, there really isn't, at the end of the day, a lot of difference in the percentage points. Why do you think that is? 
Yeah, I think in the United States, they have a very different sort of situation. And I'm frankly very concerned about the trend that I see in U.S. politics. It's become very divisive. Because of the laws down there are very different than the laws up here in terms of fundraising, so there's no controls virtually down there on raising money. Therefore, I think the whole political process is in some ways corrupted by money. But the other thing is that they also are able to gerrymander their seats, so they're able to redesign their districts. Imagine if I had the ability to decide which people in a certain area are going to be part of my voting block. Obviously, I'm going to design it in a way that favors people that support and share my opinion. The problem with that is that you then literally are just representing an echo chamber and you're not hearing the diverse voices that you need to hear sometimes to modulate your policy positions. And so right now there's a lot of people in the United States that frankly don't care how extreme or radical they sound. If they think it plays well to that group of people in their defined little border area that support them, that's good enough for them. And I don't think that's a good way of, uh, of actually getting to compromise, which we ultimately sometimes have to do. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. And also just listening to other voices. I try hard in what I read and who I listen to to make sure that I hear differing opinions because I think that ultimately my policies and ideas that I come forward with will then be formed and informed by a multiplicity of sources and voices. And that, I think, makes for better public policy. In terms of policy, have there been any issues that you've looked at in the past 18 months since you've been leader and changed position? No, not for me. I mean, my principles are anchored pretty strongly in terms of what I believe in. I'm always open to looking at how we can do things differently. What I really care about, if people really want to understand me, is just know that from my days in business, I spent the last 10 years in the private sector. In the private sector, you're held accountable for results. That's just the way it is, whether you're an employee or whether you run a business. If you're an employee and you do a terrible job, you're probably going to get fired that's accountability. If you're a business and every quarter you're losing money, you're not going to be in business very much longer. And that's accountability. Only in government can get spectacularly bad results and yet just keep doing more of the same thing, hoping somehow by some miracle that things are going to get better. And it just doesn't work out that way. And that's part of my frustration is that I think we need to hold politicians, including myself, accountable, not for what we promise, or the announcements that we make, but for the results we actually get on the ground. And that, I think, would greatly improve the body politic in Canada if we held people responsible for outcomes, not for what they promise. When I look at the results of the last provincial election, Kevin, it appears that the Liberals were elected in more rural ridings, for the most part, mm-hmm. versus more urban ridings of the province. What do you as the leader of the party read into that? What I read into that is we became disconnected from urban and suburban seats, which frankly appalled me as somebody that represented a suburban riding of Surrey-Cloverdale for 12 years. When I was previously in government, I retired in 2013, went back into the private sector for 10 years. In those days, I used to win that seat by some of the largest margins in the province, and that seat's now held by the NDP. Now, We'll win that back. I have no doubt about that. And we'll win back a whole bunch of other seats we lost. But I think it was because we became disconnected from urban, suburban voters. The NDP have the reverse problem. They are an urban party and an urban government. So they're very good at speaking the language of urban voters in the lower mainland and the island, but they're terrible at connecting with the rest of the province. I don't want to be a premier for just one portion of the province. I want to be a premier for all the province. That means the urban, suburban, and rural parts of BC, because that's really what makes this province strong. You cannot be a government that's only going to represent part of the people. 
And so we've been working very hard to rebuild the relationships that we used to have in urban, suburban British Columbia. And I think we're making real progress. And that's in part by talking about issues that matter to people, like kids are going back to school. I announced some changes that I think will resonate with urban, suburban voters, and frankly, all voters, saying, for example, that we want to return letter grades back to our system. David Eby and the NDP have said we're getting rid of letter grades. Parents now can't figure out how their kids are doing in the school because of the vagueness of the assessment that they're now utilizing. We also said that smartphones need to be restricted in schools so that kids can bring them to school, but they check them into a lockbox and they spend six hours not being on social media and listening to teachers and learning and growing and running around the schoolyard like kids should be doing, not spending all their time on phones. We also said that we need to crack down on vaping, which is a real challenge for a lot of teenagers especially because we've got an industry that is really marketing going after those kids with flavors like cotton candy and cherry and candy cane, the kind of stuff that kids would like but it really propels them down a bad path. So I think those are the kind of things that speak to all parents, whether rural or urban, and something that I think if we continue to put out policy ideas that resonate with folks, then we will earn their support to get back in government. Along that line, Kennedy Stewart, the former mayor of Vancouver, was a guest on the podcast recently to talk about his new book, Decrim, which outlines the steps to have hard drugs decriminalized in BC on a three-year trial period. So both the RCMP and Dr. Bonnie Henry had recommended that change prior to implementation. What's your position on the legislation? It's a disaster. And I think it's, it's being proven that every single day. I call it the NDP's reckless decriminalization program, with no guardrails, by the way. So even the federal government said to the NDP government, look, if you're going to go ahead with this experiment because that's what it is, decriminalizing drugs like fentanyl, methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, etc., then you should have some guardrails in place. Make sure you've got education for children to say, hey, kids, decriminalization doesn't mean it's safe and it doesn't mean it's legal, right? They're not doing any of that. There's no guardrails to say we're going to restrict open drug use in parks, playgrounds, beaches, public spaces. They haven't done any of that. And we're now seeing an explosion of open drug use all over the province. And this is affecting children. In Vancouver, for example, you can't go to a beach and just pull out vodka and start drinking or smoke cigarettes even. You can't even use plastic straws, for God's sakes, in our beaches, many beaches. And yet you can openly inject heroin or pull out a crack pipe and start smoking crack or use fentanyl or what have you. And that's just wrong. If we could see some improvement in results or if the overdose death rates were going down, uh, which they're not, they're going up every single year to the worst levels we've ever seen in the history of the province, then you might be able to say, okay, I guess this is working. And surely to God, if we see evidence that the outcomes and results are getting better, I guess we got to support it. But that's not the case at all. And I can tell you the police, although some of the chiefs of police were supportive of decriminalization, what they were supportive of is not charging people for small amounts of drugs. And I agree with that. We don't want to waste court time doing that. But the problem with the wholesale decriminalization is now the police can't even remove those drugs from folks. They can't take them away. So if you are in a playground and you're pulling out your crack pipe and there's children all around, the police can't do anything about it. They can't take the drugs away. That's what they would normally do take the drugs away and kick them out of the area. They've lost that ability to do so now. So I think it's created way more problems. And frankly, the situation's getting much worse. When it comes to the economy and the affordability crisis overall, 
inflation, gas prices, grocery prices. How much can the province really do to help make life more affordable for British Columbians? Oh, they, they can do a lot. This is something that's really important for the public to understand. You know, when I first ran for office in 2001, it was the first time I'd ever been elected to anything. I was one of the youngest cabinet ministers in our government at that time when we won that massive victory. And we won it because we had just gone through 10 years of a previous NDP government where we ended up with the highest marginal income tax rate in North America. We had some of the highest taxes in the country. We had the highest youth unemployment rate. Debt had doubled, et cetera. And so what did we do on our very first day in the legislature? We reduced personal income taxes by 25% right across the board. The lowest two brackets, in fact, we reduced the rate by even more. I think it was, if my memory serves me correct, about 27%. We did that because we wanted to make sure we put more money back in the pockets of individual British Columbians and send a message that this is going to be a province where when you work hard and you earn money, we're not going to penalize you for that. We're going to try and encourage you and reward you by leaving more money in your pocket so you can spend it on whatever you choose to. Today in British Columbia, once again, after six years of NDP government, we've got the top tax rate in BC is now 53.5%. I can tell you, you know, when people are giving more than half their income away to government, guess what they start doing? They start finding ways to stop doing that. They get involved in all kinds of tax schemes, family trusts or offshore accounts, or they try to figure out ways with smart accountants to try and avoid having all their income go to government. And so at the end of the day, I think government just loses by overtaxing people. And what we want to do is create a situation where we're reducing costs on people. But it's not just tax rates. After six years of this government, I'm sorry to say, but one of the results that they've gotten after promising that they were going to create affordable housing, after six years, we've ended up with the most expensive housing in North America. We now have the highest average rents in the entire country right here in British Columbia. We have the highest fuel prices in North America. That makes it really hard for families, whether they're renting or whether they're buying or whether they want to buy. They are facing one of the most expensive jurisdictions in the world. And all of those increased costs, the taxes, the gas taxes, and all these things all flow right through the supply chain and make everything more expensive, including groceries and other things that people are noticing have gone up significantly in cost. We have to have a government that gets up every day and thinks to themselves, how do we reduce costs to individuals, especially those on fixed incomes like seniors or young families trying to get started? And that means we have to think about everything we're doing and think about how we can reduce costs, not increase them. When Today in BC continues, Kevin Falcon talks housing affordability, the carbon tax, and attracting candidates to provincial politics. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. When we talk about folks being concerned about their ability to afford a home in the future, as you started to talk about just before the break, there's a number of issues that are not under the control of the province. There's inflation, of course, interest rates. But what can the province do to help folks who are struggling with housing? So first of all, we have to understand that the current government made a fatal mistake at the beginning of their term when they first got elected in 2017 in that they misdiagnosed the problem. They said that the reason we don't have affordable housing is because evil developers and foreign Chinese buyers. That's effectively what their conclusion was. And so their response was, let's add a whole bunch of new taxes to housing, and that's how we're going to create affordability. But here's the problem. 
they totally forgot about the supply side of the equation. They did nothing to actually say, we need to improve supply and get more housing into the market, all kinds of housing. I say flood the zone with whether it's single family, whether it's townhomes, condos, rental, market rental, affordable rental, we need all of it. Because they didn't focus on that for almost five and a half years, only later did David Eby, as the former housing minister, one day wake up and say, gee, maybe supply might be part of the problem. Well, no kidding. The problem is we're now six years behind the eight ball when they could have been doing something early on to get much more new supply into the housing market. And they've missed that opportunity. So what would we do differently? Number one, I would make sure that we have legislative changes so that we have local governments that are able to approve new housing projects in a timely way that provides certainty to those that are trying to get housing into the marketplace. We cannot have a situation as we have today where it is not uncommon, certainly in the lower mainland, for projects to take four, five, six years just to get the approvals so they can start construction. All that time adds huge amounts of cost to housing. So that's one thing. The second thing is government is a big part of the problem. 25% of all the costs of new housing today are all government taxes, fees, and regulatory charges. So whether it's the property transfer tax, the PST, the GST, the development cost charges, community amenity contributions, public art charges, new requirements for greener standards, etc., all of these things together conspire to make housing very unaffordable. And then the same politicians are out there saying, gosh, we're so concerned about how unaffordable housing's become. I think government's got to look in the mirror because we're a big part of the problem. So we need to have some people that know how to actually get results in housing. I spent, as I say, I've spent decades in the housing sector. I know a lot more about housing, I can assure you, than the people that are there right now. A lot of it is making sure that we provide the right incentives to get the private sector to do what we want. And that as government, when we come up with programs, we have to have programs that respond quickly and fast to get dollars and supports to people that really need it, especially on the affordable housing side. So there are solutions. It's just that we need some people there that know a thing or two about how the market operates. How do you feel about the province introducing legislation to allow four units on a single family lot to increase densification? In this case, what they've done is say, we'll make every single family lot in the province now immediately a a potential four-unit lot. Here's why that's not going to work. And this comes from someone that knows a bit about development. If you take a street of 10 single-family homes and you say, okay, now we're going to make it 40, here's the problem. You have to upgrade all the sewer pipes, the water, the power. All of that costs a lot of money because you can't just keep the existing sewer and water and power that you've got for those single-family homes to now deal with 40 homes on a typical street. So who's going to pay for all that cost? If you say the developers should pay for it, great, but they're not going to build it because you know what? The cost is going to be too expensive for them to bear, and they know they won't be able to get it back from the buyers of their projects because they won't be able to charge enough. That's one part of the problem. Just from a practical point of view, it's not effective. The other point of view as to why it makes no sense is that all you do when you do that is encourage sprawl. And the one thing we know about the growth of cities and communities over the past 50 years is that what you want to discourage is sprawl, where people are having housing all over the place, so they now have to drive everywhere to get around. What you want to do is plan communities so that you've got the density around transit corridors, so that people don't have to own a car, or they can use it infrequently because they've got easy access to transit, whether it's rapid transit or effective buses and cycling and all those other options. And then the farther you get away from the transit corridors, you have what we call gentle density. The density level starts to reduce down until you get to single-family neighborhoods. But to think that you're just going to take 
single family neighborhoods and snap a finger and they're all going to become four unit homes. It's simply not going to work. Let's talk about transit for a moment. You brought it up. Your thoughts on BC Ferries and the direction that organization needs to go? Look, I think, again, we talk about results. I'm really concerned about the results that we're seeing with BC Ferries. This NDP government decided that they wanted to get more involved in controlling what BC Ferries does. So they fired the chair of the board. They brought in Joy McPhail. Uh, Does she have any marine experience? No. Any business experience? None that I'm aware of. She does have the experience of being a former NDP MLA and happens to have been one of the architects of the Fast Ferries program. Ferries are just a disaster, frankly, right now. We've got four, five, six ferry sailing weights. We've got the ferries telling people not to bother coming to the ferry terminals in cars unless they're prepared to walk on. You've got all kinds of challenges happening now. It it just comes back to my original point and really the overarching theme of what I always say, and that is hold people to to account for results. So when the government says we're going to make the BC ferry system better and the way we're going to do that is by getting directly involved, okay, that they have the right to do that, but let's hold them accountable for the results we get. And the results we're getting right now in BC ferries and BC housing and healthcare and violence in the streets and the drug programs, etc., are just not good. The federal conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, has promised that if he becomes uh, prime minister in the next federal election, he's going to scrap the carbon tax. Carbon tax was made legislation in this province under the BC Liberals. Yes. Would we be better off with it in the future or without it? Here's the problem with what's become of the carbon tax. When we introduced North America's first revenue neutral carbon tax back in 2008, if my memory serves me correct, I was very proud to be part of the government that did that because what we said was we were going to put a a carbon tax on emissions because that's the market way to deal with something. If you want people to change behavior, you put a cost to it and you ask them to consider shifting their behavior. But we also made sure that not a penny of that would go into government coffers. So by law, as a revenue neutral carbon tax, we had to return all of the revenues it generated back into the form of lower taxes for individuals and for small businesses. And that made sense because then it becomes a tax shift, not a tax grab. What happened when the NDP got elected in 2017, the first budget they came out with, they said, we're not returning any of that back to the public. We're going to take it all into government, which they now do. And I think that absolutely destroyed the whole basis on which we were able to get public support for a carbon tax because we didn't make it a tax grab. It was a tax shift. And people recognized, okay, We're doing our bit to have a future where we have reduced emissions, we respond to climate change, et cetera. But I think the NDP have now turned it back into a tax grab, and people just find it hard to support that. And now you've got the federal government that says, hey, we're going to bring in a national carbon tax. And by the way, we're going to just keep cranking it up to levels that ultimately they want to get, I think it's to 130 a ton by 2030. Here's the problem, is that they're now frog-marching British Columbians on that program, and people are really struggling right now. We're already paying the highest fuel prices in North America, and people are already struggling to get food on the table. Frankly, I understand why people say scrap the entire thing, because they're frustrated. I would argue that the right response is still to say we want to go back to revenue neutrality and make sure that every penny of that goes right back into the pockets of British Columbians. And by the way, federal government, you ought not to be frog-marching the provinces into your very high carbon tax either, because I think that does a real disservice to struggling families. When we chatted on this podcast a couple of years ago now, you said it was a very real concern about attracting more quality candidates into political life. Perhaps you could update us on how that's going. 
that's the one thing that gives me a lot of encouragement because it's tough to go into public life. I know lots of folks that say to me, Kevin, I can't believe you do this. I can't believe you walked away from your private life that you had where you had a bit of success and you're going to go back into politics. But the truth is we need good people that are willing to step forward. And it's hard, frankly, to get good people, especially women, to go into public life. And so the good news is I am frankly staggered at the quality of people that are stepping forward wanting to run with us, whether it's doctors, entrepreneurs, former professional athletes that are saying, hey, Kev, we want to help you because we think it's important that we get involved and try and get the province back on track. You spent a number of years across the house from former Premier John Horgan, who retired from the B.C. legislature in 2022. I did, yeah. Funny thing, John and I both come from an Irish heritage. I think that's probably why I got along reasonably well with John, because in the legislature, we could be really good opponents of each other and go back and forth as only the Irish can. Thank God there's no liquor there. It would have been even worse. But I like John. I think he was a worthy adversary, and he had some health problems, and my thoughts are always with him, and I hope he does really well now that he's retired, and I think that was the right decision he made. A very different premier from the current one, David Eby. John was pretty straight up, and you know what he said I could mostly take to the bank. David's a little bit of a different character. I'll leave it at that. Do you still enjoy politics after all the years, even after the break? What's the best part, worst part? Yeah, I remember when I was in government, because I've only been in government up until I came back and became leader of the BC Liberals, now the BC United. And so I'd never been in opposition before, but I remembered when I was in government that some of the, the veterans that had been around for a while that had spent years in opposition used to say, your worst day, your absolute worst day in government will be better than the best day you ever have in opposition. Now that I'm leader of the opposition, I do understand that a bit because really as opposition, your only job is to critique the government and to point out their weaknesses. And that's easy for me to do because they frankly give me lots of material. But as a person that is by nature very optimistic and wants to get things done and likes to fix things and go out and solve problems, it's frustrating when you haven't got the tools of government at your hand to be able to do that. So I see lots of crazy things happening and I just sit here sometimes as leader of the opposition frustrated and I cannot wait, hopefully, to you know, get the support of the public to get back into office and really start getting some things done for the public. And as I always harp on about, be held accountable for the results and the commitments that I make. That's really important to me because I think that's why we undermine trust in politicians because they'll go out and make crazy commitments. I think that undermines trust in politicians. So I always try to make sure that, as I say to my caucus team, let's underpromise and overdeliver. That's how you build trust. I'd be interested in your thoughts of when you think British Columbians will be going to the polls again. That should be an easy answer, October of 2024, because when I was in government previously, brought in changes, and one of them included setting in law a fixed election date that said there's going to be election dates fixed every four years so government doesn't get to manipulate when they call an election to their own benefit. Now, I think that's a great law. The NDP violated that law in 2020 during COVID when they looked around and said, hey, this could be a great opportunity to call an election because the opposition parties, the Greens and the BC Liberals, literally said to the government when COVID started, look, we're not going to be standing there harping and criticizing. Let's work together for the benefit of the public. And they did. And that probably was the right thing to do. The problem was the government said, this would be a great time to call an election. So they called a snap election. I think that's unfortunate because, first of all, it, it breaks the law and it erodes trust in government. Now, David Eby has not only doubled down, but tripled down in his commitments that he is going to honor the fixed election date this time. And he has said many times, too many times to repeat, 
that he is going to call the election in October 2024 when it, the law says it should be called. He said it so often that I jokingly say that even I'm almost inclined to believe him. But because I've seen their past, I do have to prepare ourselves for something earlier. So spring next year, I think, is something that could be a possibility, and I'm focusing on making sure that we're ready. I'd like to thank Kevin Falcon, the leader of the BC United Party, for joining us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send us a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, YouTube, and Google Podcasts. From the latest community news to informative, entertaining reads for travelers and the cannabis curious, just visit your local Black Press Media community newspaper website to sign up today.